We are in the book of Romans now. You can open up to the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 18. The book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 18. Last week, we kicked off a discipleship challenge. This is a copy of the discipleship challenge. It says, nail it down, discipleship challenge 2018. If you didn't get one last week, you have to stop by the welcome table on your way out because these are there. Here's the challenge. First, read the entire book of Romans. Second, pray through all 30 days of the fall prayer guide. That's also available at the welcome table. Then, four-week streak, attend church for four consecutive Sundays. That started last Sunday. Okay, so it could be any four between now and December 9th, but you have to come to church four weeks in a row. Then, memorize four verses from Romans. They're listed here. And then invite one person to church. Maybe they come, maybe they don't, but you at least invited them. No family members. Okay, don't talk to your one-year-old. Hey, you want to come to church today? Yay! <laughs> invite somebody, your neighbor, you know, friend. Uh, no immediate family members. Now, if you complete this by Sunday, December 9th, put your name... We're going to set up a table in the gym and you're going to get some Harvest swag. People are always like, where can I get a Harvest shirt or hat or a mug or whatever? And we're going to have a special table for, for you for completing this challenge. So get after it if you need a copy of it. Again, it's by the welcome table and we're all doing this together. Make sure in your small groups you hold each other accountable and challenge each other to move forward on that. So the sermon today is titled, Man versus God. Growing up in literature class, they said that so much of the uh, suspense in literature comes from the, the conflict, man versus man, man versus nature. And today we're talking about man versus God. Where do we stand with God? Where are we? How did we get here? Where are we going? This is a great morning for you to ask yourself, where do you stand with God? Uh, where are you? Where are you going? How did you get here? Where are you with God? The entire book of Romans is really all about answering one question. How can I know I'm right with God? How can I know I'm right with God? Some of you walked into the room this morning and you know you're right with God. And you have a biblical basis for that understanding. Some of you came in the room this morning and you're not sure if you're right with God. You're not sure. And others of you came in and you know you're wrong with God. You don't know what to do about it or how you feel about that. So today we're going to talk about man versus God. How can we know we are right with God? Let's pray and then we'll get into the word together. Father, we want to know you. We want to know who you are. We want to know where we stand with you. We want to know that we are in a right place with you. So open our eyes through your word and show us how we can get close to you, how, how we can be rightly related to you, and reveal to us what you have done to make this possible. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, are you there in the book of Romans, chapter 1? And uh, all these sermons are available online and on our app. So if you ever miss one, like if you miss the first one, you miss the whole overview of the book, all right? So go back and get that one and listen to it. We've got a podcast too. So Romans chapter 1, verse 18, here's what it says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, 
in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This passage answers many questions. The first question that is asked and answered is this. Number one, you can jot this down. Who is God? Who is God? And contrary to the popular belief today that that man evolved from some primitive being and then began asking higher questions and higher questions and, and then one day invented the idea of God. No, we don't believe that. We believe man actually began with an understanding of God. That at the very beginning we knew God. We walked in the garden with Him. And what we see today is not some sort of ascension to a higher plane of human existence, but things have been deteriorating from the beginning, getting worse. And it's because of us and God. The question, who is God, is the most important question you can ask in life. And let me, let me just follow up by saying, have you nailed this down? Do you know God? Do you know who God is? God is knowable. At the very beginning of a conversation about God, people can fall into different belief systems. Some people think there isn't a God. Other people think he's impersonal, like a force, some sort of some sort of an energy, which means you can't know him because it's more of an it. It's more of a substance. Other people think there are many gods. We believe that there is one God and that you can know the one true God. It says here, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. What do we know about this one God? Well, jot this down. God is holy and determined to do away with all sin. He is holy and determined to do away with all sin. It says here the wrath of God is revealed, the wrath of God. The tense there in the Greek means it's, it's happening right now. Right now, his wrath is being revealed. So we have to ask this question, well, who is this God, and, and, he, and what is his wrath, and what does that teach us about him? Well, God's wrath comes from his holiness. He is holy. He is set apart from all that is made and from all that is wrong, from all that is wicked. God is set apart. Apart from that, that means he's good. That means there's no wickedness within him. He is completely other from matter, and he is completely other from sin. Now that's great news. That's great news. Don't you long for a world without sin? Don't you long to wake up one morning and know there will never be rape again? Don't you long for a world where there will never be murder again? Don't you, don't you desire a world where there will be no burglary? Don't you want that? Don't you feel deep within the heart of your being that you want a world without sin? And don't you long for a heart that never sins again? Don't you, don't you just get weary of your failings? Don't, don't you wear yourself out? Am I the only one? Don't, don't you get to the point where you're like, I did it again. I said I wasn't going to, but I did it again. Why do I keep sinning? Don't you long for a heart without anger? Don't you long for eyes without lust? 
Don't you long for a tongue that never deceives? To never envy another person again? To never doubt God again? To never feel the shame of your past mistakes again? Don't you want that? See, because we were built for a better world. And therefore, it's great news that God is holy and determined to do away with all sin. But sin is located out there and sin is located in here. So when I talk about a God who is determined to do away with it all, that's a threat. It's a threat to a world that is hostile to him and it's a threat to our hearts that go to war against God. I like a quote by a guy named A.J. Gossip. What a name! A.J. Gossip. Here's what he says. The core and essence of the gospel is its tremendous and glorious revelation of how deadly is God's hatred of sin so that he cannot stand having it in the same universe as himself and will go to any length and will pay any price and will make any sacrifice to master and abolish it. And he is set upon doing so in our hearts, thank God, as elsewhere. Listen, when you understand that you were made for a perfect world, and this ain't it, you will long for a way to get to a place of paradise. A place where you will never sin again and no one around you will ever sin again. You will long for that, but you won't know how to get there. Then when you look at the cross of Jesus Christ, you will see that God made the ultimate sacrifice. To what? To do away with sin forever. God hates sin. He hates your sin. He hates the sin in the world. And I praise a God who hates sin. That's what I want. I want sin to go away. Hey, could you worship a God who allows all the sin in the world to go unpunished? Could you worship that God? You know what it means, whether you or people in your life, you know what it means for, for sin to slice through into your heart and do irreparable damage. You know that. And would, could you worship a God who's like, well, I'm just going to let that one pass. Just going to let that slide. We are moral people. How do we feel about referees who allow penalties to go uncalled on the field when, when they let the other team get away with one? Uh, stadiums shout and swear when the referees let one slide. Am I right? Oh, the replay. Everyone, oh, oh, show it again. Oh, and the referees just up there like, Whoops. Well, I'm going to hear about this all season long, right? Why? Because we are moral beings and we demand justice. How do we feel when governors allow corruption to go unchecked? Are we just like, well, you know, we'll let this slide. No, we demand justice when we find corruption. How does the business world feel when... People lie about their product and lie about their business and take investors' money and then, huh, I was just making stuff up, but thanks for the millions. Are we like, well, you know, I mean, we're just going to let this go. No, we demand justice. There's a business called Theranos, founded by Elizabeth Holmes. Check out a picture of her. She wanted to be the next Steve Jobs. At 31 years old, she was worth $4.5 billion. How much were you worth at 31? Imagine looking into your bank account and seeing $4.5 billion. One year later, she had nothing. Imagine losing $4.5 billion. 
What happened? Well, she told a great story. I went, her story was I went to Stanford and I dropped out as a sophomore because I had a dream. I never liked needles as a little girl. So I'm going to come up with a way to test blood where you don't really have to get hurt that much. And then Walgreens made big deals with all these people made big deals. Oh, it's the next big thing. We're going to invest all this money. And then guess what? She was lying. She was over-promising and under-delivering. And then came the investigations and then came the news reports. And then she lost everything. She's now facing criminal fraud charges because she lied. She wasn't doing what she said she was doing. Now, why in the business community are people not saying, you know what, we're just going to let this one slide? Because we are moral beings created by a moral supreme being, and we demand justice. So God is holy, and he's determined to do away with all Sin. All of it. All of it. Therefore, he is a God of wrath. God's wrath is expressed in many ways. This highlights his daily expression of wrath. Later in the passage, you'll find out that what he means by that is he's constantly allowing people to reap what they've sown. He's turning them over to the consequences of their actions. That's the daily form of God's wrath. Okay? So you lie, you get caught, and then you lose your job. He's turning you over to that. You get involved in sexual sin, you get a disease, right? And you just have to live in that right now. You get, he's turning people over to the bondage of their sin, and he's allowing the pain to come with the lawlessness. God is daily turning, turning nations over to the consequences of their historical ways. But God, God also periodically expresses his wrath in severe ways. The flood of Noah, he judged the entire earth. Sodom and Gomorrah, he poured fire down from heaven. Egypt, he pounded them with plagues. And then finally it cost them all, the whole country, their firstborn. So God's periodic wrath comes and displays how he feels all the time about sin. But he's a very patient God, which is why it's only periodic that this form of wrath comes. When God talked with Abraham about the coming judgment on the Canaanites, he said, yeah, they're going to get judged, but their sin has not reached its full measure yet. 400 plus years later, God brought Egypt, uh, the Israelites out of Egypt, and then the people were judged by the Israelites. So God's wrath is severe, but he's not some furious being, you know? He's not some, he's not some man who blows his top up in the heavens because he's so angry. His wrath is his settled opposition against all evil and his determination to do away with it. God is holy and determined to do away with all sin. Jot this down. God is also creator of all that has been made. It says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Then it goes on in verse 19 to say what can be known about God is plain because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. So we believe in a creator who made everything. This world is created and controlled by a moral God. That's great news. That's great news. And since creation, God has been knowable. When it comes to creation, God has made some fantastic things. Check out these pictures. I'm, I love the Hubble Space Telescope and all the pictures that the Hubble sends back. Look, God made all of that. This is created. Here's the next one. God formed the universe. Here's another one. God filled it with entire galaxies. And this next picture, these aren't stars. Every one of those is a galaxy of stars. 
And some of these Hubble Space Telescope pictures that come back, they say that they, they took a section of space that was about the size of like a straw, just a little straw, and then they blew it up and, and they see all of these galaxies just in this much space. And imagine if you kept moving the telescope all over. God created everything. He is a creator. We believe that it's easy to defend that there is a creator. Many today believe there isn't. Science has disproved God. Now that we have science, we don't need God anymore. No, science actually shows we need God. You see, uh, everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Simply put, well, what must that cause be? That cause must have power, intelligence, and a will. Well, what in the universe has more power than the universe? The answer is nothing. What, what in the universe has more intelligence than the Nothing. There has to be a will, too, because what was holding back the universe from being made? Everything was there. Why didn't it exist sooner? Only God qualifies as the original cause for the universe. Therefore, science reveals a need for God. God is the creator of all that has been made. Jot this down. And we learn in this passage that God is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. These are the three omnis. All right. Omnis. Who is our God? He is omnipotent. He has eternal power. All power. That means nothing controls him. That means that he rules over all matter. The, the whole universe does what God has told it to do. Right. You go to the gym and you see a strong man. You're like, wow, look at all the weight that guy's got on the bar. Yeah, put a planet on each side and then we'll see if God's impressed. All right. How much strength do you really have? You're microscopic compared to a holy God. His power is beyond comprehension. So he's omnipotent. He's also omniscient. He knows everything. He knows everything. And he didn't have to study for the test. It's not like God, over a long period of time, learned everything. <clears throat> he knows everything. Everything that displays intelligence in this world shows that behind this world, there's a being who possesses all knowledge. All of it. He's never learned anything from you. It's not like he's looking over your shoulder saying, Oh, that's a good idea. Angels, write that down. <laughs> Nothing you say has ever surprised him. He knows everything. And the fact that there are signs of intelligence and personality all over the universe really points to a creator, an intelligent designer. When you look at how things were made and assembled and how they function, you don't see the product of blind chance. Time plus matter equals what? Uh, time plus matter plus chance would get you a, maybe a bucket of blocks, but nothing sophisticated for sure. I saw this video recently, because I love finding God's hand in creation. I saw this video recently of one of the most adorable things I've ever seen. This is, this is a video of the peacock spider. Check it out. The peacock spider is dancing 
to try and attract the attention of a lady friend. The stakes are pretty high because if, if he succeeds, then, you know, they become a couple. Uh, but if he fails, she eats him. So I just, I just gotta say this for all the single ladies out there, you need to raise the stakes of that first date. And when you sit down with the man, just be like, hey, I just need you to know that if this date doesn't go very well, you're dead. I won't eat you, but I'll feed you my dog. <laughs> I mean, make him work, you know. All right, so the point is this. When you watch that, you know, I just say to myself, okay, you're telling me nothing made that? You're telling me nothing thought that up? Nothing designed and crafted that? Because that shows so many signs of intelligence intelligence. God made everything. And it's obvious. It says here, his invisible attributes, verse 20, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. When you look up at the stars in space, you say, there must be a God. When you look at his handiwork in hand carving every animal, there must be a God. This is what we refer to as general revelation. General revelation shows you that God is powerful, he's knowledgeable, and you can learn that just by watching a beautiful sunset behind the mountains. Omnipresent means he's everywhere. The heavens cannot contain him, he's bigger than all. Number one, who is God? He's holy and determined to do away with all sin. He's creator and he's omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. Number two, write this down, oh, what's the problem? Who is God and what's the problem? It says this, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This week the Jehovah's Witnesses came to my door. Even though I'm on the list of homes that they shouldn't knock on because I caught them giving literature to my children one day when I wasn't there and I'm like, all right, no more of this. I like to talk to you, but... So anyway, they came to my door and I reminded them I'm on the list, but then I stepped outside. I was freezing and I had no coat on. We talked for 15 minutes. And, and here's it. They always have a lead-in, right? And here's his lead-in. Sir, can I ask you, where do you think all of the suffering and pain in this world comes from? That was his lead-in. And I was like, this is going to be a great conversation. <laughs> and there's always two of them, which means you're outnumbered, right? One time, I was at the Starbucks, and, and there were five of them that walked in, and they recognized me. So we sat down, and it was like a rumble in the Starbucks. It was five on one. Okay. I always take them to the same place, Revelation chapter 5, and I'm like, hey, in your Bible, every creature is worshiping him who sits on the throne and the Lamb. Who's the Lamb? Jesus. Why is Jesus getting praise in heaven? They don't have an answer to that. So I show them the solution. But the problem we agree on. The problem is there's so much evil and suffering in the world because of sin. It's The Bible sorts sin into two basic categories here. It says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Jot this down. We are ungodly. We are ungodly. The word ungodly contains an entire group of sins that are against God. Ungodliness means your heart is against God. It's a relational form of sin. So atheists refuse to believe in God. That's ungodly. They won't even acknowledge his existence. That's ungodly. Some people redefine God to suit their own personal beliefs. So that's ungodly. If people just start making things up about you that aren't true, that would hurt you. 
All right? It doesn't matter if they're living a good life elsewhere. If they're making things up about you, they're against you. And if you make things up about God that aren't true, that's ungodly. Other people believe in God, but they just don't like him and they don't trust him, and so they won't worship him. Ungodliness shows that the basic problem in the human heart is a worship problem. It's a worship problem. We do not love our maker. And all other forms of sin come from this primary form of sin, ungodliness. Uh, It says here that clearly we can know who he is. We're without excuse. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. So ungodliness means you won't honor God. You don't honor him. The word honor at the root uh, has the word uh, doxa. And the word doxology kind of comes from this. It, it means to, you know, to give honor, to, to glorify. And people don't esteem God as glorious. So if you won't speak very highly of God, if you don't highly exalt him with what you say, you're, you're refusing him honor. You're, you're refusing him honor. And you can do this passively. You know, by coming to church and never singing. Well, I'm in church, but if you're never singing, you're withholding honor from God. It can be passive, it can be active. It says here, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him. So they won't thank him. They won't honor him, they won't thank him. Hey, do you know what it feels like when someone is ungrateful? When you have given of your time and your money, and you've given over a gift, when you've poured yourself out for someone and they are ungrateful. Do you know that feeling? Do you know the feeling when after all of your effort, your boss doesn't care? When after all of your thoughtfulness, your spouse doesn't care? When after all of your sacrifice, your kids don't care? Ingratitude is heartbreaking. This is a form of sin against God that many people don't understand the power of. You see, you know what it feels like in life, at work, in your home, to be used, to be devalued, to be rejected. You know that feeling. Am I right? Am I right? Am I right? Do you know that feeling? God knows that feeling. And God knows that feeling because of you and me. Sometimes people say to me, well, I don't have to go to church to be a good person. I don't, I don't have to be religious to be a good person. How many of you have heard people say that? The assumption is I'm doing good things without needing God or his church. Okay? Now here's where this is fatally flawed. Your children can be great employees at work. Your children can be wonderful mothers and fathers. But if they haven't called you for 10 years, are they good people? Are they good people? If the God who made everything means nothing to you, it doesn't matter all the good you're doing. You are an ungodly person. Ungodly. There are many ways to hurt someone, right? Oh, you could go up to your enemy and stab him in the leg. Ha! And then run off with a bloody knife. 
right? Or you can just talk behind their back and say things that, that get them, they lose their friends, right? There are many ways to sin. Ungodliness is a heart against God. You won't honor him. You won't thank him. And then it says, they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds and animals and creeping things. Right? And it goes on to say, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Notice how it says they're worshipped and served. So I won't honor him, I won't thank him, and I won't serve him. I will do nothing for him. Nothing for him. I won't do anything for his church. I won't do anything for his people. And if this is you, if you don't honor God and you don't thank him and you don't serve him, if the sum total of your life is God means nothing to you, you are an ungodly person. And maybe you haven't you haven't thrust a butcher knife into the sky to tell God how you feel about him, but the message is coming forth loud and clear. You are ungodly. That's a problem. And this is a more serious problem because this is where all the other problems come from. Next it says, uh, verse, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness so God's furious if you're ungodly. And unrighteousness. Now write this down. We're unrighteous. We're ungodly and we're unrighteous. If ungodly means not to worship, unrighteous means not to obey. So we don't worship him, which is where it starts, and then we don't obey him. Unrighteousness means our choices are against God. Ungodly means our heart is against God. Unrighteousness means our choices are against God. So we, of course, learn the basics of God's law and his will um, from the Bible. General revelation and creation can show you there is a God and he's mighty and smart and strong. But you can't really learn the specifics unless there's special revelation. General revelation, special revelation. Special revelation reveals God's will, his plans throughout history. So forms of special revelation include his Bible, his son, Israel's special revelation, this te uh, teaches us details about God. So we spend a whole year on Moses. Here's a picture. Whole year. A whole year on Moses, right? The Ten Commandments. That's not the real Moses, by the way. <laughs> but God literally wrote in stone his law. Here it is. March it down and give it to him while they were having this drunken origin, right? Around the golden calf. So we are unrighteous. God reveals his law and we break his law. There are rules everywhere you go. You know that, right? I was on a Southwest Airlines flight. You know how they give you the big speech before the flight? Well, the flight was running uh, late. We were, we were taking off late, so the flight attendant only had a very short window. They were like backing up, about to take off. And the, the flight attendant didn't have time to give the whole speech with all the rules. So he got up there and he said this, uh, do the do's and don't the don'ts. That's it. Do the do's and don't the don'ts. And it really is that simple, right? If only you can follow all the rules. The problem in life is we do the don'ts. Don't we? We do the don'ts. So it's not enough for God to just be like, here's my law. Do the do's, don't the don'ts, because we break it. So then what? Now, sometimes people try and reason their way out of thinking that they are the problem. If you think you're a good person, if you think you're a religious person, if you think you're a charitable person, what you're saying is, I'm not the problem. 
The problem in the world is out there, not in here. I'm a good person. What you're saying is, there's a few ways people justify this. They say, well, I sin less frequently than others. Do you now? Does that make you a moral person? What, what if someone was like, I beat my wife less frequently than my neighbor? Is that okay that I do it less often? Uh, yes or no? No. Frequency doesn't solve the problem. Sometimes people say, well, I'm, I sin less severely than others. I don't do the bad ones. Okay. I beat my wife less severely than others. I don't hit her as hard. Uh, does that make it okay? No. See, I can apply this to any sin. I steal less money from my company than other people. Oh, really? That makes it okay? Sometimes people say, well, yeah, I sin, but I do more religion to outweigh it. Oh, so you beat your wife and then go to church. Just try standing in a human court of law and saying, yes, I ran that person over with my car, but then there was someone collecting money on the next street corner and I put money in their bucket. So I outweighed it. Adding good doesn't take away the bad, right? Well, I do more charity. Okay, so you beat your wife and then give to the poor. It doesn't work. It's not the amount of bad or good that you're doing. It's the nature of sin that ruins us. So if you're about to eat your cereal, and I'm like, by the way, I just took, a, I, I just took, I, I mean, just a, just a tiny amount of dog poo and put it in there. <laughs> I mean, the smallest amount. See, it's the substance that ruins it, not the amount. Okay. Oh, what kind of dog? No, you're not going to ask that question. Because <laughs> you know what the substance is. Sin is worse. It's the substance of sin that makes it fatal. All right? Yes, when you go to the doctor, if you get diagnosed with cancer, you want to know how much, but you also want to know, is it really cancer? Because if it is, you know you're going to have a hard road. doesn't matter how much or where it is or how progressed. That, that all will affect the treatment, but it still is what it is. And sin is cancer of the soul. And we all have it, and it's fatal. So enough about feeling like you're a good person. Enough about saying I'm not the problem. You have a terminal spiritual illness in your heart. Sin. We all have it. And only God can cure it. But, but, let me just come back to the idea of the amount of your sin. Uh, On Judgment Day, there will be no lack of sin to convict you. If you feel like there's just going to be this tiny little pamphlet with all your sins in it, everyone else can have big books, but I'm just going to have a little trifold brochure that lists all my sins in life because I was an angel. Uh, You will be shocked on Judgment Day. Do you know I read last week that on average most people speak about 16,000 words a day? Some less, some more. I'm a preacher, so I'm sure I'm up there. On average, 16,000 words a day. That would fill a 300-page book a week with your words. A bookcase in a year, a library by the end of your life. Check this out. Here's a picture of a library. Now, let's just say on Judgment Day, you're on the words portion of your judgment. Is that going to take a long time? Every word you've ever spoken is going to be brought out into the light. And now today, with 
texting and tweeting. Now there's not just going to be the words you say, but the words that you tweet. I, I feel bad for the angels that are up there right now having to keep up with every teenager's little thumbs going, and then they said this, and then they said this, and then they said this, right? His little feather pen is like smoke coming off of the scroll. It's all getting in your book. I teach the high schoolers now because we're looking for a youth pastor. Keep praying for that. But they were all in tables here last week, and I talked about judgment that's coming in heaven and hell. And I said, hey, if there was a book in the middle of your table, they're all sitting tables. There's a book in the middle of your table with everything you've ever said. Would you let the girls and the boys at, at your table read it? Every one of them was like, no, no, no. I said, and if you let them read it, would you let them tell other people what you said about them? Oh, no. No, no, no. All right, these are high schoolers. All right, for the grown-ups in the room, we've got a lot more material that we have put out there. Uh, There will be no shortage of things to convict you. And that's just your words. When it comes to everything you've ever done, imagine if all of your sins in in a day were emailed to you or printed up. You know, that would be a big binder. Imagine then at the end of the week, a box or two, and then at the end of the month, a dolly filling a truck, and at the end of the year, you need to get a warehouse open, and at the end of a lifetime, here's a picture. Well, there's your sin, right? And the record of your debt stands against you. If you think you're a good person, let me just point out that uh, you're going to have big problems on Judgment Day. I told this to a woman once. She still goes to our church. She got baptized uh, last year. And I was explaining this to her because she said, well, yeah, I I pray every night. And I said, that's not enough. There's no way you're going to get to all the sins. And then I explained this to her and I got to the warehouse part and I said, see, so so then there's this whole warehouse full of sin. I said, and and Jesus came and then she said it. It was really special. She said, Jesus came to forgive my warehouse. I said, now you get it. Now you get it. Not little individual this is and that's, all of it. The problem is you have a warehouse of sin that you will one day be held accountable for. Who is God? He's holy and determined to do away with all sin. That's a problem because you have a warehouse full of it. He's creator of all that has been made, which means you're under his authority. And you're subject to his moral law, whether you like it or not. He's omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. What's the problem? I'm ungodly and I'm unrighteous. And so are the rest of the people around me. Jot this down, and we suppress the truth. So we don't worship, we don't obey, and we don't believe. We suppress the truth. God has done so much to reveal himself. It says in verse 18, men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What, is, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain. He has made it plain. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, has been clearly perceived so we are without excuse. We suppress the truth. We dunk it. We push it down. We push it away. And therefore it says that our minds have become futile. Goes on to say in verse 21, they did not know him as God. They did not honor him or give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking. So our minds have become filled with futile things. Our hearts have become foolish and darkened. Do you see how there's a deterioration? We knew God from the beginning, but we turned away from Him. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We've suppressed the truth. And we know better. Well, the third question is the best. 
Who is God? What is the problem? Number three, write this down. What's the solution? What's the solution? And for this, we go back to last week's verses, which kind of govern all that we're reading now. It says in verse 16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The solution is the gospel. Creation shows us there is a God. God's moral law shows us we have broken it. And then he sent his son Jesus into the world to save sinners. To save sinners. Well, how is it that we can be saved? You can jot this down. A, B, C. A, admit to God that you need to be saved. Jesus said it is not the well who need a doctor, but the sick. And what that means is if you think you're okay without him, you don't realize the truth of your need. He can't help you because you won't admit that you're truly sick. A, admit to God that you need to be saved. If you think you just need a little help from God, you're way off. You need a rescue from God. You need to be saved by Christ. That's why he came into the world, to save sinners. Have you admitted to God that you need to be saved? That you are sinful and broken beyond repair? Or are you still minimizing the damage that your sin has done to yourself and to others? A, admit to God you need to be saved. B, believe Jesus died to take away your sins. Believe Jesus died to take away your sins. This is great news. But you have to admit the bad news first. You can't work off your sin. It doesn't matter how many good things you do, how long you've come to church, how much money you've given to the poor. Nothing that you've done can erase your record of debt. Jesus died on the cross to take away your sins, to take them all away. The cross was where the Son of God, who never sinned once, was put to death as a substitute for you and me. He died in your place. Because God's wrath, there's that word again, Because God's wrath was poured out on his son and he paid the full penalty, he alone can stand in the courtroom of heaven with a receipt saying, paid, paid in full. We got a notice in the week uh, earlier this week that said, shut off gate, your water is about to be turned off. I'm like, what? I paid that bill. And I went on my, pulled it up. We used to own this rental property, you know, out in the West because we couldn't sell it when we moved down here. Great story. We sold it, whatever. But I accidentally paid that water bill instead of the real one. I was like, "Uh uh-oh. Now I need to go get that money back because I paid the wrong bill and I have a bill that is unpaid. So we've got like three birthday parties happening this weekend because it's Jared's birthday and my birthday. And I'm like, the water's going to get shut off because I didn't pay the bill. Hey, listen, your sin bill has so many zeros on the end of it, you will never pay it off. But Jesus made the final payment for your sin at the cross. When you go into that warehouse on Judgment Day, if you trust Jesus as Savior, you can open box after box after box, and they're all empty because he takes away your sin. Just smile and say, go ahead, pick a box, pick any box. Oh, 2012, open it up. It's empty. That's the confidence you can have on Judgment Day. Jesus is the solution. But do you believe he died on the cross to take away all your... Are you still trying, a little white out, to go back through 
and fix the whole record yourself. You'll never get it done. A, admit to God you need to be saved. B, believe Jesus died to take away your sins. C, confess Jesus as your Savior publicly. And let me just close by inviting you to choose to get baptized. Coming up in November, we have the date in the bullets, and we're going to have a baptism service. I would love for you to choose to get baptized. I want you to publicly confess your faith in Jesus Christ and to tell, tell him in the world, I believe that I have sinned and broken God's law, and Jesus died to take away my sins, and I'm committing my life to him now forever. <clears throat> I'll never forget when I was in college and I heard the gospel. And one day at a small church in the western near suburbs of Chicago, I lowered my head and I prayed with that pastor and gave my life to Christ. Again, by my bedside at some point during the week, I knelt down and said, Jesus, save me. And hey, that can be, the, that can be your heart right now. You can say, I need this solution. I want to know God personally. And I want to give you a chance to reach out and to take hold of the free gift of eternal life right now. Let's close our eyes and let's go to the Lord and let's pray. Father, there are so many here today who don't know where they stand with you. And I don't want to do anything to manipulate them. I don't want to do anything to coerce them. Because I know that it's your spirit that sets captives free forever. I do believe, Jesus, though, that there are some in the room right now whose hearts are crying out for forgiveness. The shame is too much. The guilt is too much to bear. They know what they've done in this world. Maybe there are some who even came here this morning confident in their own righteousness and you just tore all that down. And they're afraid of the day when they will stand before you. Lord, I pray that you would use all of that to drive them to a place of humility before Jesus Christ. May they kneel before the cross right now and in their own hearts pray, saying, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Take away all my sins. Empty every box. Give me confidence that I will stand before you on judgment day. Clean, healed, forgiven. And help me to live in this life with the promise of a perfect world to come. No more sin, no more death, no more sickness ever. Give me that hope. Because you overcame at the cross. Father, for those who are praying, believing in Jesus, the risen Lord, fill their hearts with all the hope and the peace and the joy of heaven as they reach out to a Savior. And fill this room with your Spirit, Lord, for those who have been saved. Remind us that though our sins are as scarlet, in your eyes they are white as snow. Thank you for this precious truth. This is why we praise you and sing to you and honor you and serve you. We say all this in Jesus' name. Amen.